I feel like I should have the uh, the boxing mic for the uh, the advocate versus the accuser. Yeah. <laughs> so we're building in this mask. teaching on Caroline's <laughs> Caroline's teaching from last month. The accuser of the brethren. Hopefully, you've all had a chance to listen to that. Um, I listened to it, I think, three times, and uh, every time the, there's new things that come to me. I believe it's a great gift from the Lord that God gave us through Caroline to put a foundation marker in this beginning of forming the foundations of community. I think the accuser of the brethren talk is is the beginning of a foundations of community series which will continue today, and then next month, I believe Marisha will speak to us, which is going to be really wonderful. So, um, without further ado, my wife. (laughs) Okay, before I jump in, I I just want to say, um, I do want to take a moment as a group to lift up the peace of Jerusalem, because I, I feel like that pleases the Father because it's on his heart. This last week we celebrated the ascension of the Lord, um, but she said, you know, if you really love me, you'd be happy that I'm going to the Father. And I, I'm honestly sometimes not all that happy that, mm-hmm. that he's left. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it is a good thing. But one of the things he said when, when the disciples were gathered around sad to see him go, he said, listen, I'm going to come back the same way you mm-hmm. saw me. And so I just want to pray, Jesus, for your return to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. We want to see you enthroned. We are not wise enough to know what should happen in this situation. We are not wise enough to pray for specific outcomes, but we want to see you enthroned in the city of Jerusalem. Amen. Amen. All right. So as Thomas said this morning, we're going to take up the question that Caroline posed to us last month. And our answer to this question is key to our fruitfulness in Christ. It is key to our ability to live in community, and living in community is a sign of the Father's love and the Son's love. Our answer to this question will either bring glory and joy to the Trinity or grieve the heart of God. So this is a question we must ask ourselves daily and even hourly because the thoughts that we entertain and the works of our hands are going to be determined by its answer. So are you ready for the question? Yes. yes. Ready? Please. Whose kickball team are you going to be on? <laughs> that is the question. Is it the accusers or the advocates? Now the answer seems obvious, right? The accuser is no friend of humanity. He's the father of lies. He's the instigator of discord, division, hatred, jealousy, and all the works of the flesh. He wants to kill us, spirit, soul, and body. The advocate, on the other hand, is a comforter, a helper. The advocate is the very spirit of God, humble enough to live inside of us and give us the mind of Christ. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And when we are trained by the advocate, we manifest God's own nature. When we are surrounded by a community of people who manifest God's nature, that's the kingdom of God. 
Now, who doesn't want to play on the advocates team, whether you're a Christian or not? Does that sound good? And yet our churches are marked by discord, jealousy, adultery, licentiousness, and even hatred. So how does this happen? How is it possible that the accuser has gained such a foothold in the body of Christ? Friends, the answer to the question is really simple but it's hard to swallow. The truth is, we let the accuser in. We what? We let him in. We chose his kickball team. Like Eve, we've entertained his voice. We've failed to recognize his identity or the ramification of his lies. In fact, we often mistake the voice of the accuser for our own thoughts. He's quite happy with that. Because if we fail to recognize who he is, his influence goes unchecked. So today our goal is to unmask the accuser and see where he is working in our own lives. Not in society at large, not in that part of the church, but in me, in my own head. So we have an advocate who is very present and wanting to help us. But the work takes some courage, like snake hunting. Mm-hmm. But like the snakes are like snake hunting, but they're in your own soul. If we do not expel the accuser from our thoughts, we will always be frustrated in our attempts to live in community. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean you can only live in community when you're perfect. That's that's not reasonable. But if we're if we are satisfied, if we're unaware of how the the enemy plays, we won't have the tools to live in community with one another. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. So, there's lots of grace. But the unity that Jesus prayed for is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the accuser is dead set against him. So, are you willing to come on this snake hunting journey today? <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're going to pray a prayer. The prayer um, for the help of the Holy Spirit. This is the prayer that we pray in the statement of devotion with a little bit of change in it, but it's still a biblical change. It's okay. So let's pray it together loudly. Come, Holy Spirit, fill our hearts and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit that we might be new creations and you shall renew that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of judgment, and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. 
of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, for years, I puzzled over all the becauses right. in this passage. I assumed that these were deep spiritual truths that I just didn't get. Um, but this year, the Holy Spirit said, Amy, you're really overthinking this. Really seriously. <laughs> on the most simple level, Jesus is saying is when the advocate comes, he'll do all the things that Jesus did, but on a big global scale without limits of time or space. So Jesus came preaching a message of repentance. But now the apostles were going to preach this message of repentance, and the Holy Spirit was going to come and convict hearts directly. Jesus came manifesting the nature of the Father and his righteousness. Now the Holy Spirit was going to come and make disciples like Jesus, full of faith, hope, joy, and love. Jesus came, oh, where we go? Um, so now when Peter stood up to preach on the day of Pentecost, he was burning in the fire of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people were convicted of their sin and of Jesus' righteousness. And this conviction came with a wondrous joy and freedom. They were so happy, so full of joy, that they just started selling everything <laughs> and giving it away. And why did they do that? Because they were convinced there was a judgment coming, and Jesus was going to preside at the judgment, and he was going to reward them lavishly for all of their gifts. They were convicted of Jesus' judgment, his soon coming swift judgment. I think that the early apostles were absolutely amazed at the power of the Spirit. Not so much in the speaking of tongues or the working of miracles, because when Jesus was on earth, they saw all of those things. I mean, I don't know about the tongues, but they saw miracles. What they were really amazed at is that people were convicted. They, they said the simple words about Jesus being died, um, dying and being raised to the right hand of the Father, and people believed them. <laughs> this is rather astounding. It was especially astounding that Gentiles started putting their trust in a Jewish Messiah. Gentiles who despised the Jews or knew nothing about the Jews, where suddenly they were putting away the idols the worship of their fathers, even if it meant death, even if it meant going to jail, and they were putting their trust in the Messiah. That is the power of the advocate. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, I want, I want us to grasp the fact that the internal conviction of sin and of Jesus' righteousness and his judgment, that is the most critical work of the Holy Spirit. It has right. always been, and it will always remain, the most critical work of the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, it is Jesus' glory that we repent and we're saved. This is why he came, right? It is the Father's glory and joy that, we, that there is many sons and daughters who love Jesus and who are united with him. The conviction of sin is also our glory because it reconciles us with God. It brings us into agreement with his justice and his mercy. And when we're fully in agreement with God, we live in union with him. There, there is nothing that compares to that. To live in union with God. Caroline reminded us last month that the saints overcome the accuser by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Singular, the word of their testimony. We have one singular testimony. And it's the same as Peter's, and the same as Paul's, St. Francis, Billy Graham's, Mother Teresa's, Corrie ten Boom's, George Birch's, yes. 
Our testimony is this. We are sinners, saved by grace, loved by the Father. Mm -hmm. But God demonstrated his own love towards us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So say that with me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I am loved. I am loved. I am saved. I am saved. That's it. That's our testimony. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <laughs> that might be too hard. So I want us to go back to the very beginning of the church when the Holy Spirit has first come. Jesus is gone. And this message is being preached with signs and wonders and power. And thousands of people are coming to Christ. I tend to imagine those days as a sort of utopia or golden age. Believers were eating together, giving up their possessions, praying night and day. And so one might think that Satan would go on the defensive, right? But no. Caroline reminded us that Satan's pride knows no limits. I was talking with Rose last week, and she said, she told me, what did she say? I remember it. You know that Satan ain't afraid to parade himself in front of the throne. <laughs> He's sure enough going to dress himself up and come prancing down the aisles of our church. Yes. Can you hear what saying? Yes. Yes. Say it again. <laughs> okay. Satan ain't afraid to parade himself before the throne of God. He's sure enough going to dress himself up and come prancing down the aisles of our churches. Mm. That's good. Good word. So while the apostles were still alive and the church was still in its infancy, the accuser weaseled his way in, sowing dissensions, divisions, and discord in the first century church, just like he does today. And how did it happen? The way it always has. People like us, and like Eve, gave their ear to the accuser. The accuser suggested to some believers that the apostles were holding out on them. There was secret knowledge about God and the angels. If they would be initiated, they could know it. We still have a lust for secret knowledge in the occult. Mm -hmm. On another front, Greek-speaking Jews accused Hebrew-speaking Jews of slighting them. Perhaps they were right. Perhaps the Hebrew Jews thought more highly of themselves than they should. Perhaps the Greek-speaking Jews were drinking in a victim spirit. But whatever reason, there was tension going on. The accusers deceived others, saying God's mercy is a license to sin. He doesn't care what you do. He loves you. Right? You're saved. And so sensuality and immorality ran rampant in some of the early churches, leading to hurt and estrangement and division and discord. We're no different than our first century counterparts. We unwittingly give our ears to the accuser. We become familiar with his voice, so familiar that it sounds like our own. We become, become deceived and full of pride, believing we're thinking for ourselves and really just replaying age-old lies that have been played millions, billions of times before. So let me give you a concrete example, and I want a physical show of hands, okay? How many of you have ever thought, oh, God must be totally tired of me, I've sinned too many times, I've sinned, my sin is too great, he surely not going to forgive me again. Okay, like, like, I want your hands like way up in the air. Okay, 
See, Satan is a used sin salesman. <laughs> There's nothing original here. Did you know that self-condemnation is not a biblical concept? There's only one who has the right to justify and condemn. And he sent his only son to die so mm. he would not be condemned. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between condemnation, which is an accusation against the Father's character, and conviction, which is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to come and ask Caroline to expound upon this idea. So I want to talk about the difference between the reconciliation of the Holy Spirit (coughs) and the estrangement of the accuser. And as Amy pointed out, conviction of sin is a gift. It is a gift of the advocate. The goal of conviction and confession is always, 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 always reconciliation with God and with our brothers and sisters. Always reconciliation. Yes. The advocate does the work because the Father and the Son so ardently desire reconciliation with us. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. You see, the Lord's desire, as expressed in John 17, is for us to have unity with the Father. We are invited to an intimate relationship with the Trinity. Remember that sin, and not conviction, sin is what separates us from God. That's important. So when we stray into sin... The gift of conviction leads us to repentance, which then leads to reconciliation. Okay, get that in your head. I I mean, I'm not talking down to you, but this is important. Mm -hmm. Conviction leads to repentance, leads to reconciliation. It don't matter if you've committed the same sin 25 times that week or 25 times that day. I want to just point out an interchange that St. Peter had with Jesus. We all know this one, but I think it's good for review. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And boy, howdy, he thought he was shooting high. Seven times, you know. But Jesus said, answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, one reason I think Jesus told Peter he must forgive his brother 70 times 7 is because this is indicative of human behavior. We need forgiveness 70 times 7 times. We are repeat offenders, people. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He is advocating for us repeat offenders. 
he would not ask Peter, listen up, he would not ask Peter to forgive 70 times, seven times, if he himself did not forgive 70 times, seven times. He will reconcile us to himself no matter how many times. Reconciliation is the advocate. On the other hand, the accuser wants to estrange us from God and from one another. The accuser lives in a world of condemnation. Jesus said that with regard to judgment, he stands condemned already. He's already condemned. He would love nothing more than for us to be condemned along with him. Remember, his goal for us is death. Death. He is a roaring lion seeking to kill us. He will fill our minds with lies to paralyze our thinking and have us accuse God of not being who he says he is or acting in the ways that he says he will. 1 John 1, 9. We all know this one. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there are many, many commentaries on this verse and many different theological angles. But the crown jewel of this verse is not even, I don't think the conditional parts, the forgiveness parts. The crown jewel is, he is faithful and just. In this context, John is tying the forgiveness of our sins to the faithfulness and justice of God. This is the critical truth in this passage, more than how the rest of it works out. It is that God is faithful and just, and his judgments are based on his law. Now, if I get a traffic ticket, the legal system is in place to both correct me and protect me to correct me for the wrong I've done, and to protect me from bogus or trumped-up charges by law. The charge has to be plainly stated, and the path to righting the wrong is clear. I go to the courthouse. The judge tells me I've done wrong. I admit guilt. I make my restitution, and I go on. But what do I do if if I show up and the judge says, you're going 45 in a school zone? What were you thinking? How dare you? What kind of person would so brazenly break the law of the land? Established to protect all good citizens. How long have you been driving anyway? How do you live with yourself? (laughs) Clearly you are not fit to drive. You're not fit to live. You may get off with a fine, but what you deserve is life in prison. Now that's laughable, kind of, right? I wonder how familiar that is to some of us. Folks, we need to stop this moral outrage with ourselves. Say it again. We need to stop this moral outrage with ourselves. It's actually birthed out of pride. We have got to be open about our weakness coming to Jesus like a child. We've got to stop saying, 
I should be done with this by now at my age, either natural or spiritual. In other words, I'm above this. Did I really think there was something good in me that I should be above sinning? There is nothing good in me. Everything I am, I am by the grace of God and that alone. Yes, I am an overcomer. Hallelujah. But not by my own effort or merit. Only by the blood of the Lamb who was slain for me and the word of my testimony that I am a sinner saved by grace. Amen. Amen. Now the devil would have us believe you confessed your sin, but you need to go into a spiritual timeout because God's mad at you. So God is no longer the judge in the courtroom. Clearly he's not competent. I can replace him. I can self-determine my own punishment. And we have thoroughly discussed where this takes you. You see, brothers and sisters, it is not humility that makes us wallow. It is not. It is a twisted sham humility. And friends, false humility is a poorly disguised form of pride. Amen. I assure you from personal experience, I'm preaching to myself this morning, I assure you from personal experience, that true humility is much more difficult and much more glorious than this hellish spiritual confection called false humility. And I don't care how much powdered sugar you put on it, baby, that is a poison funnel cake. Funnel cake to hell. Because it distorts our testimony that God forgives sinners. It's poisonous because it drains our joy in the Lord. Mm -hmm. The joy of the Lord is our strength. If the enemy can compromise our joy, we're weak for other attacks. That's right. It's poisonous because we entertain condemnation. We are consumed with ourselves. Mm -hmm. We have no heart to rejoice with those who rejoice or weep with those who weep. Mm -hmm. Now, self-condemnation is not the only tool in the accuser's tool belt. As we read last time, there are many works of the flesh. It's so funny. I, I memorized the, the fruits of the Spirit when I was young many times, but I never memorized the works of the flesh. <laughs> 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 yeah. You wonder what your children are doing right now. <laughs> All right. We have sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Each of these manifestations of the flesh will separate us from God and from one another. Let's think about drunkenness for a moment. We know that alcoholism destroys families, right? It is irresponsible to watch your husband your child, your friends, spiral into addiction without speaking the truth to them. Do we agree with this? Yeah. So sometimes when addiction has taken hold of a loved one, families will arrange an intervention, not because they are morally outraged at their loved ones, but because they want reconciliation. Amen. They want to live in peace and joy with the person that they love, and that person is in the grips as a slave to alcohol. We can think of conviction of the Holy Spirit as an intervention made in love to keep us from becoming estranged from God and with one another. 
the enemy will lie to us and try to convict us that true conviction is just judgmentalism or condemnation. Our modern world has, by and large, bought into this lie. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that sin kills, and we need help repenting. We need help turning and receiving mercy. I want to I want to share about a major intervention towards reconciliation the Holy Spirit made in my life regarding a behavior I had an addiction to which estranged me from God in the fall of last year I was at the local library in Elgin and I was perusing the free books shelf that they have outside the outside the library and I came across a book that immediately caught my attention because the title of the book was, My Name is Caroline. <laughs> and I was like, you know, you get that Holy Spirit, oh no, you know, <laughs> or that reaction to the Holy Spirit. But I saw the book because Caroline is not the most common of names. So it really jumped out at me. So I, just out of curiosity, I picked it up and looked at the dust jacket, which told of one woman's battle with and subsequent victory over eating disorders, bulimia. Not something I found interesting at all, to be honest. But I half wondered if the Spirit was speaking to me and telling me to read that book, because the Lord does that kind of stuff with me. So, but I left, left the book there. And upon returning to the library several weeks later, of course, the book was still there. <laughs> I felt a nudge, and I resisted. <laughs> but the nudge persisted. You know how the Lord turns up the volume, you know? <laughs> When he, or at least to me, he'll turn up the volume. It seemed clear at this point that the book was indeed for me. So I found, I found the book very interesting from the moment I opened it. And I decided to ask the Lord, Lord, do I have bulimia? And I'm not, I don't have an eating disorder. I want to clarify that. But I wonder, what is, what is it that you're telling me? And this is what the Lord said to me. And I'm going to read it slowly so you can catch it. He said, you have emotionally punishing behavior that is comforting you. You've broken the first commandment by having a God other than me. And that God is called slave driver. You have attributed to me completely unrealistic demands. And you vented much anger towards me when you could not meet these ridiculous expectations. But you have been deceived because these were the demands of the slave driver, not of me. Pretty startling. The Lord was telling me that I was a spiritual bulimic who spiritually routinely binged and purged. Like other perfectionists, or performers, I spent most of my life, since my childhood, binging on unrealistic expectations of myself, as well as binging on people's praise whenever I would meet those expectations. Of course, I was bound to fail at some point, at many points, because no one can arrive at perfection. So, after falling short, I would swing in the opposite direction. By mentally purging myself of any validation I'd received from others or myself, 
I would bring myself back to the accuser's presentation of reality, what his reality was. That is, because of my failure, I'm not worthy of God's love, and he's enormously displeased with me. God became a slave driver, or better said, the slave driver became God. I easily believe this lie because somehow the crushing of my self-worth felt like truth-telling. You see, the slave driver and the accuser are not just kissing cousins, folks. They are one and the same. A primary goal for the accuser is to heap condemnation, anger, shame, and fear on believers, turning them against the Lord. And I was in cahoots with them in my own life. The Lord in his great mercy dealt very strongly with me in this arena in order to set me free. I had to realize that my issue was not low self-esteem. And I'm going to stop here for just a second because i got to testify. It was not low self-esteem. I chose to believe the accuser. And I want to say I'm a Gen Xer. And as such, I just want to speak prophetically or for those of you to whom this, you know, this applies to Gen Y and Gen Z. You don't have to buy it. I chose to buy it, but you don't have to. My issue is that I was clinging to this slave driver, a.k.a. the accuser, as an idol in my life. Once I was able to recognize the idolatry for what it was, I experienced deliverance on a whole new level. One thing I frequently feel after a period of conviction and repentance is that I feel clean. In fact, whenever I encounter the Holy Spirit, it could be one of those wonderful Holy Ghost moments. I always feel clean. Mm-hmm. And I think that's indicative of the Spirit's work. Ephesians 5, 25 to 26 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. He washes us because he loves us. When he speaks to us, it is cleansing. Conviction can be hard. I can't tell you how hard that was to hear. (laughs) Sometimes the Lord can whap me, like on that occasion. It's not always a soft touch. And sometimes it can last for a season. There's a process. But when it's the Lord, it is clear. It is specific. The Lord will walk you through the process of confessing your sin as well as deliverance or making any sort of amends with other people. But we must make sure that the cleansing water is clear. The river of life water, crystal clear, flowing from the throne of God, not the muddy, confusing muck of the accuser. So each of us has our own weakness, our own way that we are more prone to the accuser than others. For some of us, it's jealousy. Some of us are quick to anger. But for me, the works of the flesh I find most tempting are fear and shame. Let me say that again. Prolonged habitual shame and fear are works of the flesh inspired by the accuser. They may be socially acceptable here on earth, but they have no place in the kingdom of heaven. That's right. 
Now it is true that fear is a normal human emotion, which even Jesus experienced on the night of his passion and probably other times as well. To feel fear is not a sin. It's the way we are made. To feel anger is not a sin. It's the way we're made in God's image. It's okay. It's entirely right that we should feel sorrow and regret for our sins. But embracing fear or shame as the driving motivation for one's actions is a sin. And it's a deadly one because it estranges us from others. And that is how we know it comes from the accuser. John tells us clearly, there is no fear in love. For perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Or in some older translations, torment. How many of you know the torment of fear? It's torment. It's awful. It's unpleasant. (laughs) Um, The one who fears is not perfect in love. When we're walking in perfect love with God, we are secure. We know we're secure. Actually, we're secure whether we feel it or not. But we know we're secure when we're walking in love. Yes, we will face suffering, as Jesus did. We will have trials and loss. That is part of love. But we know that God is with us. We know that we will stand with Jesus in the end. And we, like Paul, can count our pain as a light and momentary affliction compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Mm-hmm. We have an advocate who never leaves us, and this faith gives us the courage to love others. The primary message of fear is you are unsafe, you are in danger. There is no one to protect you. And as a momentary reaction to danger, fear has its purpose. But over time, we can defense fear or shame as a defense mechanism that keeps us from trusting other people. We become hypervigilant, afraid that people will turn on us, can lead to suspicion, and just like condemnation, a lack of joy. When we have an overactive, deeply rooted fear response, we know that the accuser is at work. Mm -hmm. And his accusation is directed first at the Father. Fear says we don't really believe God will protect us. We don't really believe he will provide or defend. And if we don't trust God, how are we going to react to one another? Mm -hmm. I can say all of these things because I am guilty of them all. I am a repeat offender. And I've had to repent many times. But with each repentance, I grow. I grow in love. And I trust. I trust more the work of the Holy Spirit. And recently, I had a taste of what it will be like when I am completely free of fear, top to bottom. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is wonderful. One morning during Lent, I was having my usual prayer time. When suddenly, I saw a picture of Jesus in my mind. Now, I knew that this was a spirit-inspired vision and not just my imagination, because as soon as I saw Jesus, like, my whole body, like, oh. <laughs> it's like, oh, it was at peace. I was arrested, like, okay, yes, this is Jesus. Now, in the vision, Jesus took me by the arms in a very specific manner. I want Thomas to come and show with you. So he was on, he was on my right hand. <laughs> They're very good. He's on my right hand. I think no, 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 that's not it. <laughs> he he took oh, he yeah. took my arm like you know like a, an escort. It was it was formal and it was tender. So he took my arm like that, and then with his other hand he held me like this. I was like, oh. 
I've never been held like that. It was awesome. And we just like walked together. Wow, that was amazing. <laughs> so, um, so at first I was just like, I was just enjoying this because it was just so awesome. But then I realized what Jesus was doing. He said, I'm going to show you my father's house. So we walked around like that. And, you know, I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see the throne. I couldn't see the sea of glass. I couldn't see any mansions. I couldn't see anything. I could only see him. But I could hear him. And he said, this is where I rule. This is where I reign. You can come here with me. This is where you'll be. And <laughs> I just can't describe how awesome this was. When I was in Jesus' arms, I... I knew a freedom I had never felt before in my life. I was completely unguarded. I was completely aware of, um, of a kind of love that's different than anything I've, I've felt on earth, um, but familiar. I, what I mean is I knew I didn't have to perform for Jesus. That's what I mean. Mm. I did not have to perform for him. I, it never even entered my mind to perform for him. Um, or to impress him, or to say anything. I never said a word. I never said a word, not because I was afraid, because I just didn't have to. Um, and when I was walking with him, I became absolutely, utterly convinced that he is in charge. He has authority over this world and over the world to come. There is no tear he cannot dry. There is no injustice he cannot rise. He is completely in control. I realized that he wanted me there. That the Father wanted me there. Another thing that I, I can visit is, I've heard this and I believe this, Jesus is completely in union with the Father. But I felt this. I felt Jesus can go anywhere he wants to in the Father's house. Right? It delights the Father for Jesus to have authority in his house. And when I'm arm in arm with Jesus, I can go anywhere in the Father's house too. I will go anywhere Jesus leads me. I became aware that the, of the Father's pleasure in me because he desires a bride for his son. When I'm resting in Jesus' arms, his whole desire for my life is complete. The accuser is silenced. I bring the Father joy because I'm bringing Jesus joy. I'm safe in the Father's house because Jesus has asked me there. Now these visions lasted for several days, over two weeks of that. And though I never saw anything except Jesus, every time I walked with him, every time I understood more about his authority and his sovereignty, I felt in my bones the truth of what he says in John 10. There is nothing that can take me out of his hands. And as I walked there, I realized I'm a different person. I'm a different person when I'm walking with Jesus. And if I could stay here in this place, I would be an entirely different person. So one of the interesting things about these visions is that I found I could enter them whenever I wanted to. For two weeks, anytime I thought about the Father's house, boom, I was there. Anytime I thought about Jesus, we were walking. Like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> 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 and 
And then after a couple of weeks, I stopped going to the Father's house. I would remember it, I would think about it, but I didn't actually go there. And then one morning, I saw Jesus again, and he asked me, Amy, why did you come to walk with me? I stammered, I, I don't know. It's just that you've been so kind to me already, and you showed me so much I didn't want to presume. What made you think you were presuming, Jesus asked me, rather sternly. I knew he wasn't angry, but he was not pleased. It was a question. Lord, I replied, you know better than I do. And that was a good answer, because the advocate was ready to help me with it. Immediately, a memory from my early childhood came rushing back. I was about three or four at the time. My parents were recently divorced, and we had moved into a, um, my mother and my sister and I had moved into this little apartment in Lubbock, Texas. And I was playing in the driveway between the apartment buildings, and this little kid, a, a boy, I think, came out and started talking to me and said, hey, you want to play with me? And I said, sure, I want to play with you. It was like my first play date. So we waltzed into his house um, to get some toys, and the mother stopped me and asked me, have you told your mother where you are? Well, I suppose I had assumed that adults were omniscient. <laughs> the thought did not occur to me. <laughs> so I went back and told my mother where I was, and she said, that's fine. And I went about across the drive, and when I got there, the door was closed. And so my little three- or four-year-old Amy stood at that door thinking, what should I do? <laughs> I knew that you were supposed to knock on people's doors before you went into the house. But I also thought that maybe it would be annoying if I knocked on the door because maybe the mother would have to leave whatever she was doing and come answer the door. And I had been there just a minute or two ago, and she had said to come back. So I tried to in my three or four year old brain kind of compute this and I decided <laughs> that I'll just go in the door. That was a mistake. That was a big mistake because the boy's mom was right on the other side and she yelled at me, what do you think you're doing? Don't you know you're supposed to knock on people's, don't you know it's rude? Do you know it's against the law? It was like your judge, just like, <laughs> I'm glued. And I just started crying and crying and crying and I ran home. And I decided I will never ever enter anyone's space without being asked, without being invited. Mm. Yeah. Now Jesus in his compassion showed me that scene and helped me understand my own heart, but he did not coddle me in long therapy sessions <laughs> because <laughs> I already knew the solution to my fear. I was welcome in the house of God Almighty. And I was acting like a three-year-old standing at an apartment mm. complex door. Mm. I was responding to Jesus like he was a crazy woman. When I realized how I was thinking and the accusation inherent in my fear that Jesus was going to suddenly one day say, what are you doing in the Father's house? Who invited you here? Mm. A flood of other memories came rolling in. 
And I began to see how this fear in my own head hurt people close to me, which was the advocate's plan all along, to use my fear to estrange me from God and his people. So I'm going to tell you one of those stories today as an example of how the accuser can get into the head of a very sincere believer and cause pain where the advocate would bring comfort. A couple of years ago, Caroline's stepfather, who lived in West Texas, passed away. And I was concerned for Caroline, of course, but I didn't know Joe well, and Mariana was here at the time. And something else had happened unrelated to these events, which had triggered my fear. Now, while Mariana was here, I hoped that Caroline could come and spend some time with us, so in an effort to make her feel included and remembered, I sent some texts and some pictures. But what I didn't do was ask her directly how she was feeling because I was paralyzed like a little girl afraid that such a direct question would feel intrusive. So when the Owenses returned home, I asked Philip about the trip. He said it had been really hard for Caroline, much harder than I had expected or imagined. But when I heard this, I called Caroline and asked how our trip had gone. She was, of course, exhausted and rattled, so she didn't really want to talk about the trip at the time. What she didn't say is she didn't want to talk at all, but that's how I interpreted it. And so I withdrew for several days. I didn't ask her how she was doing or how I could pray for her. And I left my friends in a great deal of pain, and I was sad too because I really wanted to help. I wanted to be a comfort, but I said nothing because I was afraid of being rejected by my friend of 30 years who has loved me so well. I was acting crazy. I wasn't thinking I was being driven like a slave by my fear. The same insane fear that the accuser used to stop my loss with Jesus. So do you see how fear works against love? It's inward-looking instead of Godward-looking. It's a defensive position taken up against a false reality presented by a liar. Love, on the other hand, is brave. It is willing to suffer misunderstanding or rejection. Love is humble. Love is patient. And it was Caroline's humility that brought me to repentance. She spoke the truth to me telling me kindly that I was hurting her. And while that truth was painful to hear, it was also a huge relief because it was true. It opened my heart. I heard the advocate speaking through Caroline, as I have so many times, and I was able to turn. It was a conviction of sin that led to reconciliation. We are drawing close to the end of this <coughs> teaching, and I want to... I want to bring us back to the opening question. Whose kickball team do we want to play on? The advocates or the accusers? Being on the advocates team means opening ourselves to his conviction and his work. Allowing the Holy Spirit to convict us requires humility and courage. But it leads to peace, confidence, and joy in the Father's house. 
It enables us to love one another. Playing with the accuser will always lead to estrangement with God and other people. But cooperating with the advocate will always lead to reconciliation with our beloved. Amen. Now, one of the most wonderful gifts the Lord gave me in this past year of all the COVID and quarantines was we all got time alone. And the Lord gave me the precious gift of conviction. And I read, you know, part of that time. Conviction communicated his love to me because he was removing long-standing obstacles Amen. to the intimacy between the two of us. Though I had to work through some grief at having cooperated with the accuser for a large part of my life, conviction has brought a glorious freedom, clarity, and has released me from a great burden I didn't even know I was carrying. Now, as part of the repentance process, the Lord brought to mind the parable of the workers in the vineyard. <laughs> the one where the workers go out at different points in the day, but then the vineyard owner gives them all the same wage. Boy, that parable used to disturb me. <laughs> I'm a perfectionist, you know, I'm a performer, you know. It's like, that's so unfair. Um, but I'm beginning to have a different perspective, and I'll tell you why. Because in the context of the parable, in my pride, I've always thought that since I came to Christ as a young child, I was one of the early workers. I was there from the early morning. You know, I'm with you, God. At 6 a.m., I'm there. But how could I possibly know this? What a huge assumption on my part. The reality is, brothers and sisters, that in many ways, I'm a latecomer. I am completely at the mercy of the vineyard owner. We all are completely at his mercy. How much more brazen can I be than cooperating with the accuser, breaking the first commandment for most of my life, and just now realizing this so late in the game? It's tempting, very tempting, to carry great shame and regret and let the accuser pile it on for having missed so much of the day in this sin. But I am here to tell you the day is not done. The day is not done. There are hours in the day still. Even though I'm a latecomer, perhaps I too will be surprised at the generosity of the vineyard owner. Hallelujah. Amen. Either way, I will not continue to dawdle in the marketplace. I will go to the vineyard with a heart that has been washed in the blood again. Now, the Lord came to me at one point in this whole process, this battle with the accuser that I was experiencing, and he said, we don't have time for this anymore. Mm -hmm. The kingdom of God is at hand. We don't have time for this anymore. By this he meant he and I, the Lord and I, did not have time for me to play on the accuser's kickball team. To play the, his game of accusing God through fear, shame, self-condemnation, and lies. 
God's desire is for our freedom. He longs to embrace us and share the intimacy, the glory, and the love of the Trinity. But as long as we are partly embracing the accuser, we are not able to fully embrace the Father. Now, I spoke to Gen Y and Gen Z a minute ago, but I want to talk to you. Everybody here, but particularly if you're 30 years old or older, I would say that as the body of Christ, we don't have time for this anymore. We don't. Suicide rates are up 57.4% ages 10 to 24 since 2007. Since 2007, 57.4%. The devil seeks to kill this young generation. Despair is running rampant, and the accuser is having a heyday. What spiritual legacy are we passing on to them? We need to get it right in our own head, in our own lives, that God is faithful and just. We have got to stop accusing God, and we have got to embrace the gift of the advocate. So Caroline and I talked about um, how to end this teaching. We both had a sense that um, that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us very directly. That's what he came to do. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So Jim, would you come up and you just play some music quietly? And I'm going to pray for us. There's no time for a question. No time for questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no time for questions. That's all right. What do you think, Sam? Let's let's just be quiet for a little while, and then and then there'll be time for questions. We'll have a little bit of, of free time before lunch. So, God is so smart. Um, yeah, I, I wrote this teaching, which I just <laughs> gave, but I wasn't until like last night when I reread it that, oh, you're so smart, God. <laughs> like, you were showing me that I wasn't coming into the Father's house because I was afraid of a door that was slammed in an apartment complex in Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> and and I, that's the dynamic I feel like the Holy Spirit wants to work, wants to bless us with. We are invited into the Father's house. Mm, amen. Jesus wants to walk with us. But there may be something that's holding us back. And so I just I want to, to spend a bit of time in quiet prayer. I want to say, Holy Spirit, come. You are the advocate. You are the love between the Father and the Son, and you want to fill us with that love. So I pray that you would come and open our eyes. Show us the place, the, the things that keep us from entering the Father's house. Mm-hmm. Invite us to walk with Jesus. Give us the mind of Christ.
Marissa, would you come here? I didn't warn Marissa. I, I, I actually didn't know what was going to happen, but I believe Marissa has a great grace of walking arm in arm with Jesus. Mm. And so I would like you to pray for us. Could you pray a prayer for us? A prayer of um, deliverance. Can we all sing together again? Open the eyes of my heart. 